It's the Heart of Educational Psychology Podcast with your host, Dr. Michelle Tishy. Hi, I'm Michelle Tishy, and this is the Heart of Educational Psychology Podcast. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Katie Cortier. And first, I'd just like to welcome you, Katie, and allow you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad to be on your podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle. So I am a former health and physical education teacher and health promotion specialist turned parent sex ed coach. Um, it's kind of a uh, self-chosen title because I thought what other, what other way to describe myself that I, I work with parents, I help teach them about how to approach sex ed with their kids and the whole process of learning because we're adults, we're being coached. So um, that's what I I do. I kind of came into this part of the world because I saw um, differences in what students were experiencing. I substitute taught both in Australia and in the US and the questions I got each time were very much similar nature and I started to notice a theme and a pattern. So I started asking more questions about okay well why are these questions all so similar um, and then later when I ended up working in health promotion and teaching other educators and other community health specialists, I realized that we weren't having these conversations because we were not comfortable having them. So I thought, you know what, I can help with that. So that's how I ended up where I am. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and for my podcast listeners, I will make sure you have all of Katie's contact information so that you can get access to her wonderful programming. Um, so the first thing I'd like to do is for the listeners, let's make sure we talk about kind of the current state of sex ed in the United States and then talk a little more globally and share with them a little bit about the history of sex and sexuality education. So as of right now, what is your kind of overview of American sex ed? Oh, that's a really, really good question. So as far as it's a bit of a mixed bag with sex education in the US as it stands. Uh, we've definitely got a lot of room to grow, but essentially sex ed at the moment is very much different based on state to state and even district to district because there is essentially two types of sex education in the United States. So we've got abstinence only, which is more of the just say no approach and lacking any further explanation and then we've got the comprehensive sex ed which essentially is exactly how it sounds it's a comprehensive approach it's giving information about how to take care of your body how to interact with other people how to help make those decisions so you're giving the students decision making skills so they can make the most informed decisions because it's once you have the information to make correct decisions, you can make more informed choices and then it ends up better for all and we take care of ourselves better and we re respect other people because we have that information surrounding that. So we've got, we've got a long way to go, but I think parents are such a crucial role in moving us forward, having those conversations, um, pushing for affirmative change within our schools and kind of asking those questions as to why if that pertains to your particular school district and how we can collectively make it better. And I'll give a little historical perspective having grown up in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s and just so our listeners understand up until the early 2000s American sex education was very district driven and because of that much of the country had comprehensive sex education until at the same time No Child Left Behind was passed in the early 2000s. Um, we also passed laws mandating abstinence-only sex education, which is the just say no model, which Katie was just referring to. Um, so now let's talk a little bit about what is our desired state? Where do we want to be and how do you, does your work help us get there? Oh, absolutely. So my essential goal is to normalize sex education conversations because I think it's traditionally, like with the laws that changed that Michelle just mentioned about, it became very much a narrow view of sex education is something we only talk about when we are noticing our children are reaching the edge of puberty or when they get to the point and they start to need the 
sex conversation to explain kind of the, the physical aspects of that. But I think where we're at now, we kind of miss out on some of the valuable stuff. And that's what I really want to help parents understand that sex education, in fact, starts from birth. When you're naming, you're tell, telling them, okay, this is your elbow, this is your ears, these, this is your nose, you're also correctly naming their genitals. So you're trying to normalize it and take the stigma and charge and kind of that shame that we operate in, unfortunately, out of that. So you're normalizing these conversations, you're developing that positive relationship with your kids that you can have those conversations about anything. And that is part of also strengthening your relationship with them. And that's a really, that's a side benefit that I absolutely love. They find that their relationship improves so much. Um, so I would love to be able to see a more holistic, positive, self-esteem building, mental health awareness approach to sex ed and realizing the true scope of what it is, that it's a lifelong journey and it's about so much more than what we think it is. Yes, and as I say to my undergrads, because I teach human development, when we're talking about this aspect of human development, is I say, we are human. We, we are by nature sexual beings. That doesn't suddenly appear when you hit puberty or go and get married to someone. In fact, it's an essential part of being human. And so part of why I really wanted to talk to Katie today, and thank you for joining me, is I really want to make sure that my listeners listeners understand what an essential part of supporting our children and more broadly every child in the country and every teenager in the country to be fully human um, because in the U.S. in particular we shame and guilt and create all these stories around this aspect of being human and yet it's just part of being human. <laughs> yes. So I guess another uh, next direction maybe for you and I to talk about is let's talk about what does this look like in practice, um, starting with the little wee ones. You, you talked a little bit about naming things properly, but then where do we go and, and um, how do we support our children in fully understanding who they are as beings? In this oh, way. absolutely. So that's, I mean, starting at the young age, it makes it so much easier for you to take like little bits of it um, and basically kind of build that momentum and that foundations. A lot of sex ed isn't actually about like the sexual activity that we all kind of think that it is. Um, so starting with the little ones, you've got the naming of their body parts correctly, including the proper names for their genitals. You've got opportunities when they kind of get to the toddler age to talk about consent, asking permission before you touch them. So a huge one that I see um, just kind of commonplace is when you're, say, you're preparing to leave with your little ones and you're at a family or a friend gathering and the direction is given by the parent, um, Michelle, go say goodbye to auntie so-and-so. Like you're, you're giving them the direction and they're learning to receive a direction by an adult and follow through, even if they might not feel like being kind of touchy-feely, physical, they might feel uncomfortable with that. And they're kind of getting that message to do exactly as an adult says. And that's kind of problematic for a whole new reason. And I'll circle back. <laughs> but what I would love to see parents start to do is saying things like, all right, Michelle, we're leaving. Please go say goodbye. You can give a hug or a high five. So you're inviting them in to A, make a choice, and B, you're they're getting to choose how much physical affection they might want to give and who they allow in their space. Um, and obviously, as toddlers, they, that can change day to day. <laughs> they might be feeling really huggy one day and they might be feeling really distant and just want to wave from the safety of the parent's pants leg or something like that. Um, so you're, you're giving them those modeling opportunities. And that also kind of starts that conversation with your friends and family network to say, look, this is what we're doing. We're hoping to achieve um, autonomy and getting the chance for them to know they can make those choices. And that's kind of the protective aspect of sex ed that typically gets overlooked. So that's kind of the first little part that I love for parents to have that and just it's you wouldn't even think it's about sex ed, <laughs> but it's such a huge part. I would love to jump in and talk a little bit about this because I think first, just as a, it's 2020, so maybe this is a great opportunity because we're all having to 
we negotiate social boundaries anyway. So what a great time to work with our little ones to understand that they have the right to consent or not, because right now people are less likely to assume, even in the most touchy-feely of families, that yes. a child will hug or kiss them. Um, so perhaps seize the moment, especially if this is a new concept and you're in a really touchy-feely family. Um, but I also want to highlight something really important to the whole audience about the idea of consent positive, meaning that we are seeking to have consent be part of every form of touch throughout the lifespan. And I think most of us as adults only start thinking about consent as an issue when we start thinking about teenagers and um, sexual advances. But as Katie so eloquently put it, we actually need to lay the foundation when they're teeny tiny so that they feel like they truly have autonomy and voice and agency as little humans who have the right to say, no, I don't want to kiss you right now, or no, I'm not interested in the hug right now. Um, and not see that as a bratty behavior, but see that as an act of being an autonomous human being who gets to make those decisions about their own body. Um, anything else you want to add about that, Katie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, by, by doing those kind of like simple actions in like day-to-day -day interactions that you have, then you kind of start to build the work towards, okay, well, what is acceptable behavior? What is not acceptable behavior? Like, what do you do if someone asks you to do something? And like, you're helping them learn to trust their body and like reinforcing like, oh, this doesn't, I don't feel comfortable with this. I'm going to listen to like my gut and not do that. Or I feel comfortable and I feel respected to do that. Like give so-and-so a hug, but I'd rather give this person a high five and, and things like that. So there's just so much scope to take it. <laughs> Absolutely. And sometimes our little ones need to learn how to say accept no for an answer too. Because I, I have a now six-year-old son who, when he was a toddler, liked to approach people and grab them and touch them. And he didn't really understand the boundary issue. And so one of the first things we did in terms of teaching him consent was, um, honey, you have to ask people before you touch them, especially when you go around touching people on the rear end. Like, <laughs> he's just so friendly. <laughs> At that point, he was just like, but I like it, so I want to touch it. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. <laughs> so, yes, definitely we need to teach them about their bodily autonomy, but it's a good time yes. to also introduce boundaries and consent going the other direction. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so then we move from the toddler age when it can be comical like my son was and it can also be just adorable but also heartbreaking because people are like oh no I can't have my mandatory hug and kiss for my grandchild and mm -hmm. I've gotten that um from from my parents at a time when my children were just like not today um yes but we can, you know, as long as we are speaking from a place of love and understanding, we can help change those assumptions so that the older people don't have to feel offended by it. Oh, absolutely. And that's a, that the proactive conversation is so much easier than a reactive conversation, absolutely. just because then you're, while your little ones may not understand what you're doing to make sure, but you'll just help solidify that learning. Absolutely. So moving from kind of our smallest ones into the preschool age and um, maybe early elementary, um, what are some of the most important things that we can cover at those ages? Yeah, I would probably kind of first thing that comes to mind is public and private spaces, mm. because at that age, they're moving into a space where they're occupying it with other little humans, uh, with other adults and things like that in those settings. So you really want to have that understanding as to what is public, what is private and giving them examples and potentially even like setting your own boundaries within that like I, I know that that a lot of the time if if kids are in that kind of stage where they want to be near you going to the bathroom alone might be a little bit difficult <laughs> but as you kind of get closer you might want to set that expectation of this is a private space knock before entering waiting for permission and just using little opportunities like that because um 
they will be in a situation where they will need to respect the boundaries of the restrooms at mm -hmm. schools and things like that. And um, it's particularly with, um, they're very exploratory at that age. So that's always a good thing because they're learning about the world, but some of that can lead into wanting to explore their genitalia. Mm -hmm. And that's something that needs to be addressed before we get to that point. And just kind of that comes along with teaching them about their body, public, private. You, you're not able to touch anyone else without their consent. And with, like this activity is not for, um, not for children and things like that. And you kind of explaining and setting those boundaries with that. Well, and from a de purely developmental standpoint, I want to make sure the audience is aware that preschoolers do learn about their bodies by touching it often. And so in those conversations about public-private, it also is perfectly appropriate to tell them the bathtub is an appropriate place to explore this. But in the middle of your preschool classroom during nap time is not. And really... Yes being clear about that with them. But I think part of us breaking down some of these shame issues with parents is really saying it's okay that your three-year-old wants to masturbate. Um, to be clear about that, not that we're encouraging them to run around the house doing it, but that they have the right to explore their own bodies. And a lot of adults have internalized the shame and embarrassment about these actions and activities. And so we tend to communicate to our children, no, 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 you can't do that at all. And instead, we can introduce what you were saying, which is the public-private conversation, and really saying, in the bathtub, in your own bed when you're getting ready to go to sleep, these are appropriate places to explore your own body, not in the middle of the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And there's certainly that tendency, like, if you're, like, in the supermarket, you've got your child in the grocery cart, and they just happen to put their hand down their pants because they're exploring yeah. and things like that. There is that initial tendency to um, like grab their wrist and like remove their hand and say, no, 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 like, don't do this. That's not the, just being aware before these things happen is, is huge because it allows you to be more responsive instead of being so reactive to it. And that reactive message might hurt a little. Mm. I mean, obviously kids are resilience, but you want to kind of set that precedence within yourself because <laughs> yeah. a lot of a lot of sex education stuff is also unlearning some of the stuff that we picked up along the way. Absolutely. And not to put a dark cloud over some of what Katie and I are talking about, but for those of you worrying about or coming from families where there's been sexual violence, a lot of what Katie and I are talking about is also protective for children in terms of knowing appropriate and inappropriate touch and in terms of knowing that they have a right to say something if someone violates their consent or boundaries um, and not being ashamed to say Uncle Joey was telling me to strip when I came over to his house um, because that's a first sign of something's going wrong in a family system and um, I think that is an important reason why um, if for no other reason little ones need to have the knowledge of their own bodies and their own autonomy fairly young um, because that's the only way they can be aware that grown-ups don't have the right to touch them in ways that they don't feel comfortable with. Yes, and that having that consistent theme throughout, there are no body secrets from their parents and keeping that as an open book. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so do you want to start talking a little bit about the elementary school age? We've got from the little ones in kindergarten <laughs> all the way through the beginning of puberty in American elementary schools. So um, yes. maybe breaking it down into the younger elementary and then we'll start talking about the, what we usually think about, oh, we need to talk to them about puberty in the later part of the American elementary school. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So I think part of like getting to that stage with like early elementary is also a lot of kind of learning about their emotions mm -hmm. and learning within their body how those feels and how to work through those emotions. And that's something that's most likely overlooked because that's kind of an emotional reaction. It kind of makes sense because they don't know how to handle the situation that they're in. And I think we probably need to 
kind of collectively offer a little bit more grace for that and kind of more sit alongside them to help them work through that um, and being able to trust their internal emotions because that's you're stacking on top of the experiences so essentially when when they get older if something happens they know well, okay this doesn't feel good and they're able to know okay i am in a respectful relationship whether that's a friendship whether that's an acquaintance mm -hmm. whether that's later on a romantic you're teaching them those kind of skills to be able to know what it looks like what it sounds like and what it feels like and kind of the situations to speak up if something like that doesn't feel right and that kind of pertains a little bit to laying foundations for bullying as well mm -hmm. so they are able to to be able to have find their voice and say when something doesn't feel right and the actions to go alongside with that absolutely and a lot of the work i do is on social emotional learning and emotional intelligence so what katie and i are really saying is what i'm advocating for and what she's advocating for are the same young children especially you know preschool through early elementary need to have words for their feelings they need to trust their emotions they need to trust their own gut or intuition and we need to make sure we are continually openly communicating with them so that if and this does happen in elementary school if a child says oh I want to see what your underwear look like on the playground a child feels very confident in saying no that's not okay and goes and tells the teacher instead of keeping it as an internalized secret um, and these conversations we need to have when they're very young because these types of things whether it's playing doctor or being asked to pull down your pants by a classmate in kindergarten or first grade, they happen when they're little. And if we don't create language and communication around these things when they're young, by the time they're in upper elementary or middle school, it's a little bit late because they've already internalized this belief that those types of things and, you know, a lot of it ends up being sexual um, sexual sexually um it's not so much sexual assault but more um sexual harassment type behaviors that other children don't realize they're doing to other kids they're curious and they're exploring but if we're not talking about it then the child who is experiencing and thinks it's okay for other kids to treat them that way and the child who's doing it becomes emboldened and continuing to do those types of things as they get older. Um, but even more than that, I really like not just the bad stuff, but in the good ways, we've got to be giving them the language and the voice and the autonomy and the um, sense of agency with their own bodies and their own emotions. <laughs> um, all right. So now we move into, I, I don't know, there may be more stuff to talk about with younger elementary school kids. Um, do you have any thoughts on any of what I was just talking about, or we can move right into the upper elementary school? Oh, well, I think what, you, what you're what you saying is absolutely spot on, because I think a lot of the, this, the, how to word it, a lot of the confusion with how we might feel, um, I know, I mean, I'm going to stereotype here. People who identify as women are likely to kind of, step back on their feelings and not voice them because they don't want the person who's making them feel uncomfortable to feel uncomfortable too. And I think by starting and giving them those skills and being able to identify what's going on and how to speak up is so huge because it, it would be such a great world <laughs> if we, we didn't feel like as someone who identifies as a woman to kind of step on the back foot and not want to say anything because we don't want anyone else to feel uncomfortable when the other person may or may not have intentions to make you feel that way. So it's just all, all like I picture like a thing of building blocks, like you're just putting that, that block on top of the other. Absolutely. And, and thank you for bringing up um, gender, the gender concept, um, because we, sh we need to be having those conversations with children when they're much younger. So preschool, early elementary school is very appropriate to start talking about um, identification and the difference between your genitals and your sex organs 
identity versus how you feel. Because we know now from, you know, neuroscience that children's gender identity starts forming in those first seven years of life. And we can't ignore that some children are not going to identify with their sex or organs, or they were born intersex and were assigned a gender at birth that may or may not align with how they actually identify. Um, Absolutely. And I love that you bring up intersex because I think that's, that's an area that we don't really as a society speak about. Um, and in order to like the traditional kind of breakdown of like when students typically learn about puberty, there's the separation of male students, female students were in fact the power comes when you bring them together and we all learn about our shared experience and you also take away that exclusionary factor and you talk specifically just about more so the organs themselves more so than making an assumption based on someone's external appearance exactly and i you know this is where sex education moves into the more sex and sexuality education. We are talking about the entire conversation. We're not doing this little box that we are going to teach you how to say no to sex until you get married, but we are talking about you as a human being who has sexual um, urges and sexual organs and may or may not identify with the organs that you were born with, but we want you to feel safe having conversations from the place that you feel that you exist in society. Yes. Who are you in your body, not how we define you externally. Um, and we can start those conversations young. I mean, it's very appropriate to have them with children who are five, six, seven. Um, it's not going to be a whole complex conversation about the difference between transgender and transsexual, but helping them understand that they have the right to identify how they feel in their own body that young is very appropriate, don't you think, Katie? <laughs> oh, 100%. Like, I mean, as adults, we tend to overthink how we answer those questions or how we address situations. But the beautiful thing about children is they just want an honest answer. And essentially, if you can just give that honest answer, keep it simple to their question, and you just get a, oh, okay. And then they, they go away, they, they continue on their merry way, like you have you have done a great job like that's all they really want and even with like using teachable moments in the world i saw a um beautiful little um thing on social media that that was describing an interaction between a mother and her child and there was to be kind of more socially just assumptive was there was someone who appeared as a male but was wearing a dress and so the question, the dialogue is between the mother and the child. And then just kind of the, the child's asking, mommy, why is that man wearing a dress? And the mother's like, well, you like to wear skirts, don't you? You like to wear dresses. It's just the same as that. They might like to wear that dress and that's okay. And the, and the child's just like, okay. And just like, it, it's as simple as equating it to, it's something that we like. <laughs> we're, we're all different. We all have different likes and dislikes and we're just here to enjoy ourselves. Not to pick on my now six-year-old, but he, we've chosen not to cut his hair yet. And he's a beautiful little boy. And so <clears throat> because of that, he frequently gets at, like said, oh, she's cute. Or will she play with me? And he, by the time he was five, was like, I'm a boy and I have long hair. And Kieran does not identify as anything other than a little boy, but he's happy with his long hair and we don't do hyper-gendered clothing. So he's not often in like traditionally male outfits. He'll wear leggings and a t-shirt because that's comfortable. Um, and because of that, we've had a lot of these conversations about the way people appear versus the way um, people identify and kind of, <clears throat> having him at that young age because as early as three and four he was like no actually i'm a boy has helped us having some really interesting conversations within our broader family but also for him to feel empowered to say i know who i am i'm sorry you don't know who i am <laughs> <laughs> well so that's an empowered empowered yeah. <laughs> response that's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> so and, and that's the other thing is like the way that people make assumptions in our society is very dramatic because having long hair and long eyelashes, which is what my son has, and big blue eyes, does not necessarily mean that someone 
is a girl, but people assume that because our stereotypes are so strong in terms of what genders look like. Um, oh, absolutely. And so then we move beyond that to children who actually are identifying outside of their um, physical genitalia, and then the conversation gets more and more interesting. Um, and, you know, a lot of, luckily, I think in the U.S., a lot more teens are feeling empowered to say how they identify. Um, and that's been off-putting to a lot of more traditional adults. They, they're a little freaked out by, you know, kids saying, please use the pronoun they for me, because, and now we get into kind of the more complex conversation that maybe we'll pause for a moment and get through our timeline and then talk. About <laughs> yes, that's right. There's, there's a whole like everything we there's could go. <laughs> we, <laughs> we can talk about so much. <laughs> so moving from the early elementary into upper elementary, when we start thinking about having those actual conversations about puberty, what are your pointers for parents and educators out there? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's, there's so many different ways that I could kind of take it and I'm trying to like choose a couple. <laughs> um, I suppose continuing on with like identity and intimacy aspects of that, because at that point, their social groups are getting stronger, their identities more so shaped around their friends, um, and they, they're kind of getting more of an understanding of themselves outside of the family unit. And I think that's something that's, that's really important to be able to kind of help them understand and explain. Friendships may grow and change. They may, um, you may start off as acquaintances, move to best friends, and then for whatever reason, something happens. And then like essentially helping them cope with those changing relationships, um, because that's, I mean, we, we evolve, we change, we grow. The, the friendship circle within <laughs> within kids is always kind of changing and things like that. And that can be a very emotionally charged time for them as they're coping with that, probably for the first time with it being a little bit more more serious than, oh, I don't see my my friend because now, oh, he went to, like, they, they went to a different school, they moved, that kind of stuff. You're helping them kind of with the emotional aspect. Well, and let me just interject because we are doing this interview in the midst of a global pandemic that this moment in history has really pushed some of those conversations because can you maintain a friendship if you can't physically see each other as a third grader? It's more complicated. And so a lot of parents have been thrust into having these deeper conversations about emotions and angst and anxiety about in the midst of the pandemic in terms of children and their friends and friendships, because like, for example, we are being very conscious and, and functioning under social distancing and caution in my family, but other children in our community, because Florida doesn't have strict mandates, um, are allowed to go and play and go back to school. And those are conversations that relate to all of this um, because, you know, my children have to navigate different boundaries than the kids whose parents are like, yeah, whatever, the schools are open, go back, and I don't care if you're wearing your mask. Um, and that, that whole conversation about bodily autonomy and the fact that if we're going to go out into um, the world right now using caution in, involves wearing something on our bodies. Um, so I'm sorry, I may have thrown us a curveball <laughs> not much of the pandemic into this conversation. Hey, hey, it, it's so, so relevant. And, and that can be tied back to it. I mean, because you do have that different, very different experiences between one child and another. And how does the one child not succumb to peer pressure or teasing or things like that as to, oh, why are you wearing your mask? I don't have to wear a mask or just kind of little aspects like, learning to be able to hold hold true to themselves and how they're working to protect themselves as well. Exactly. And those are conversations that are related long term to our bodies and, and, and our sex 
um, acts in the future, but they're really important when it comes to just basic human interactions um, from the moment they enter these social spheres. They need to be able to stand true to themselves and do what's right for themselves and their own well-being. Um, and that's really what we want them to get during the elementary age, in addition to moving into learning about the actual stuff at puberty, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So let's this, uh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, there's just, there's so much to kind of like take with from this subject. And, and like, that's the wonderful thing about when you kind of pull the curtains back and you kind of look at the whole scope of, of sexual education. It's, it's so much more. I think the, I think we need to come up with a better name for sex yeah. education. Cause I think it needs to be more holistic, but I have no idea what that is yet. So <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are some programs out there, and I'm not normally wouldn't plug anything else, but there is a program run by some liberal um, churches um, in the U.S. called Our Whole Lives or OWL. Um, so if people are interested in getting involved with a church community so that they're not having to do all of this themselves at home with your support, Katie, um, there are resources out there. And um, OWL, Our Whole Lives, has been around since the late 60s. And um, a lot of what Katie's talking about is very resonant with me because I had the opportunity to go through and have, my 16-year-old's been through three quarters of the OWL program. And it really is grounded in knowing yourself and knowing who you are and understanding boundaries and understanding, um, you know, identity and understanding autonomy and I think a lot of what Katie's advocating for and making sure that parents know about is something that is kind of hidden in some programs that exist but aren't really widely advertised and something that I hope that every school on the planet could get to the place so that the work Katie's doing with parents could be available to every child because we know not every parent's going to contact Katie to get all of this wonderful information. <laughs> yes, if, if I can put myself out of a job, that is the perfect situation. Like, if you don't need me, that's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about, you know, everybody starts talking about and worrying about talking about the birds and the bees and sex when their kids get to pre-puberty. Pre and so let's talk about what those conversations might look like and how we can make them more valuable and more useful. Absolutely. So I love the idea of at this stage, your you're having kind of different style of conversations and you can intentionally kind of steer those conversations and you can do a lot of that talking kind of shoulder to shoulder because there, there is nothing more kind of scary for both the parent and for the child sitting down at the dinner table and having that awkward eye contact across the table because then it's just creating that kind of awkward bubble. Whereas if you're going out and you're doing things shoulder to shoulder, maybe you're working on a jigsaw, you're gardening, you're going for a walk, you're shopping, like you've got these different ways to have those conversations. Um, I'm a big fan of when you notice they're starting to get towards that age, hygiene is the first port of call that I recommend. Um, because obviously as adults, like habits take a while to establish. <laughs> so you want to kind of establish those habits early. So something you might be able to do with your child is essentially a trip to the supermarket or somewhere that has like um, body products. So you're looking at um, helping them choose maybe have a deodorant they like, type of body wash they might like. Like you're making it fun, you're involved and you're talking to them about why they need to do it while you're doing it. So um, being able to kind of say, look, these are some of the things that are going to happen. And, and one thing I would like to start you on a habit with, um, you might be the first of your friends, you might already have friends doing this is to wear deodorant each day and, and explain kind of like why and, <laughs> and just kind of have fun with it. Like I'm a big fan of sharing stories because everyone loves a story. <laughs> like, oh, I remember this time when I was like in school and this is what happened or I had a friend that and, and you can share um, stories so you help kind of connect the learning points with that and they're taking ownership of choosing their own products and that um, I find with people who are going to experience menstruation 
how like a little makeup pouch, making it like maybe they're, you're internet shopping on Etsy, you're going through Amazon, something like that, and you're helping them choose their own little pouch where they're going to choose uh, what products that they put in there. So pads, like maybe not tampons, but you could have them there anyway as a precaution um, and just like a, a tied to go pen or something like that, like to help a fresh pair of underwear. So you're, you're making it a learning experience for you both and they're taking ownership because I think a lot of when they're going through those changes or experiencing hormones mm -hmm. and they probably feel more out of control. And if you can give them like a little bite size of control and choice over what they are then adding into their routine, it helps empower them. So they feel like they have a little bit more of a say, um, even though obviously puberty is out of our control, <laughs> but, but that's something that they can kind of have a little bit more ownership of and, and take the charge and the stigma out of. And I'm a little more of a cr crunchy mama. I'm a little more a woo-woo and out there. So I actually, when my daughter um, started her first menstrual cycle, I did a coming of age ceremony with her with a circle of female friends and really made this an initiation into womanhood. So not only did I get her the little pouch like you just recommended, but we also, we had a circle of women who were important to her to celebrate her and to um, also offer their own suggestions around this whole journey. Um, and most of them were, were mothers. So, you know, it was a circle of moms and a maiden coming of age. So very like metaphoric. Um, but I think taking a moment, whatever your religious or spiritual beliefs are, to actually recognize the, the greater importance of this transition for them can be very very valuable for them spiritually emotionally and physically um oh, <laughs> and and i love that that you did a celebration of that that's fantastic because we're really trying to move away from that negative stigma that it once was we're trying to like go okay you know what this is a celebration this is a transition into a different part and this is really exciting because there are so many wonderful things to come Absolutely. And, you know, I'll also highlight that there's, there's some amazing um, young people right now who are doing advocacy work about destigmatizing menstruation. And in addition to all the wonderful information about Katie's work, I also, in the notes for this podcast, will share some of those resources. <clears throat> because a lot of women young women as well as older women living in poverty in the United States don't have access to proper menstrual hygiene products. Um, at, even in the prisons, people in homeless shelters, um, this is an issue in the United States. Like it is very hard for people who are underprivileged to get access to these things. And so we need to destigmatize this so that these are just as easy to get a hold of as a condom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because they're really expensive and there really is something called the pink tax where it's more expensive to buy a box of good pads than it is to buy a box of condoms. And that that is a problem in American society. Um, I will get off my social justice rants, but I, I think <laughs> it is part of this broader conversation because we need to destigmatize this whole time period for young women and empower them to feel like I am powerful and I'm strong and I bleed once a month and yay me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, now the part of this I have no experience with because I'm the oldest of three girls and I have a 16 year old daughter and a six year old son. How do we talk to little boys about their wet dreams experience the first time they go through that? Yes. Well, this is something that I like because you can set up stuff before it happens. And part of what you're teaching them at that age across a lot of different things is you're adding on little responsibility tasks. So I'm a big fan of also helping them know how to use the washing and drying machines and how to do laundry, how to fold stuff. Like you're adding these things on. So when uh, you're, as you're teaching them how to do this shoulder to shoulder, you're then having that conversation to say, hey, you know what? This is something that may happen to you. If this does happen, you you know how to take care of it. I will like we'll learn how to make the beds together, that kind of stuff. And and like you're teaching them the skills to remedy that themselves. So they also have the kind of the confidence on the back end to be like, okay, you know what, this did happen. I'm fine. 
I can make, I can fix things like I can fix the sheets. I can get myself a fresh new pair and I can continue on my way. Like you're giving them the problem solving yeah. power as well. Um, another kind of tip that I like to share is essentially with, um, with young people in general, as parents working to set those like door boundaries if on their bedroom so you're starting that precedent early to kind of knock on the door and you whether you have your system of you wait for permission or you wait for the person who owns the bedroom to come and get um get open the door and let people in you're giving them that kind of private space and that's kind of linking back yes. to all of the stuff we spoke about earlier for like public versus private um and you're really respecting their space and in turn you're setting up the respect for your space as well and um that kind of masturbation co conversation needs to be something that's had with both parties because that's something that i mean females typically don't get that conversation and i think that's something that we need to kind of we're normalizing the body we're normalizing the experience um we're all human <laughs> and uh, like michelle said we're all kind of those like human sexual beings and these are kind of ways we can kind of take those steps forward to just little things we can do that make a big impact absolutely thank you katie now is this a good time to start talking to our children about um sexual orientation or would you and because we mentioned a little bit about gender identity but I, i'm thinking sexual orientation is often something that becomes more obvious to kids as they're going through puberty um and i would love your take on it and i have thoughts on it and mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm kind of uh, on the side of if you're in a situation where like when they're younger, you're explaining where babies come from. Obviously, it's a um, age appropriate discussion, like something you say um, to explain to one age is going to be very different. The, the facts and, and the information you include. I'm a big fan of adding on how families are. So you're explaining to them, okay, you know what, we'll fit what's Families are made in many different ways and you're explaining the family dynamics. So you're sharing that information. So they have a little bit of an idea that um, when people love and care about each other, they come together and they maybe choose to become a family. And this may be a male and a female. This may be a male and a male or a female and a female. And you're, so you're kind of setting those expectations up. Um, using teachable moments is another thing that's really good because you may be able to have those conversations. You might see some characters on the TV. You might see someone walking down the street holding hands and you can kind of use those lead-in moments for that. I think yeah. we, we have such an expectation that everything's kind of like a heterosexual makeup, but realistically we're so diverse in the same way that we have different eye colors, different hair colors, different skin colors. Like we're all, it's a celebration of everyone being unique and, and, in that also comes from different families. People love different people. Like th there's so much stuff you can bring in, but don't feel like you can't talk about it because it, it's something that we all, we see in the world mm -hmm. and we need to, um, part of what I would hope that most of us want to raise our, our children to be respectful and celebrate our differences and, and look for the good in people. And I think part of that is having those conversations in our differences that being different from someone else doesn't make you bad. It makes you bring something else to the table. It makes you learn something different from someone. So that's my Ab little take. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's the style that I take with my own children is that since they were little, I, I we've talked about the different types of families and, and, and different people love different people. And there are no rules about who you love. It's just that it needs to be loving and respectful and, and consensual. Um, and so because of that, you know, with my daughter, as she went through puberty, that, that was, a no-brainer. She was like, yeah, my, my best friend has got a girlfriend now and, and I, I'm interested in this person. Um, but I see so many of her friends who um, felt trapped even now in their, you know, the second going into the third decade of the 21st century, we still have a lot of kids being shamed around not just sex, but around their own sexual identities. Um, and I, I hope that we all want to raise our children to feel like they have the right to be who they are and can feel confident in their own identities. Um, 
related to gender, sexual orientation, and everything else. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so if you haven't already had those conversations with your child about diversities of families and stuff like that, I, I would hope that we have them by the time they're going through puberty. Um, so now let's get into, since we don't have a ton more time, but I really want to have the meat of the conversation that a lot of people expect with sex education is, how in the world do we talk to them about actual sex? How do we talk to them about the diversity of sexual experiences out there so that they feel confident in themselves and following what feels right to them? Absolutely. And a part of what I, I mean, a lot of the kind of hesitation for parents kind of comes to this point because <laughs> you still see them as their, their young self and it kind of, it's that kind of hurdle for you to move through as a parent. I like to use an analogy of like an umbrella. So you're essentially, you're getting everyone ready for the day. You kind of look outside, you notice it's a little bit gloomy, a few low clouds and you're like, oh, you know what, it, it might rain. So I'm going to make sure I prepare them in case it rains. I want people to approach sex education in a similar way, particularly with adolescents, because that's kind of really where the rubber meets the road. You want to, you, you, never, you never know if or when, but you want to prepare them with their metaphorical umbrella in case it rains, in case they come into those situations. You're arming them with the information to be able to navigate that. And part of what I really saw as a teacher in different classrooms across countries was the lack of emotional connection, the lack of values. So a lot of the questions were also around like, how do I know when I'm ready? Yeah. This per I'm in a relationship with this person and they expect me to do this. Should I do this? Because they're, they're pressuring me to. And you're, you're giving them the information and the family values. I mean, that's something that can't come from a teacher. Uh, no matter how much I tried, there was, it was something that had to come from the parent um, on that because that's essentially what I kind of guide parents through is, all right, here is the, the foundational aspects. Here is the basics and the facts. Then you overlay your values and you share that with your with your kids and your family unit because that's something that they long for and that helps them navigate those decisions as well um, with as far as like sexual activity being open with conversations is really key and checking our gut reaction i mean like <laughs> when they come when they might come to you and say something like maybe they come and they ask for um, hey, could you, uh, next time you go to the shop, could you pick me up a box of condoms or something like that? Like, I'm sure most, most kids won't be so like <laughs> straightforward, but th there might be hints and like they'll, they'll mm. test the waters. And hopefully by that time, you will have had that more of an open relationship that you've been working to build so they can come to you with that. And checking your facial reaction and that initial reaction that you might have, like might be resistance, just kind of, be prepared to um, kind of take a beat, whether that's you need to count to five or, or something like that, or like some type of physical cue that you might do um, before you kind of react and then maybe ask a more of a lead in question yeah. and encourage that open discussion. Because if, if there isn't that open ability to trust and know that they can come to you as a like primary source, um, then things kind of start, being done behind your back um, and you really want that to be a conversation that you're encouraging and that way you can input the values you can input the emotional side of that um, but there's there's so much to d discuss at that at that age and contraception is huge and being able to have like um, resources where if it's a website that you've pre-vetted and you're going hey you know what look let's let's learn about this type of contraceptive let's learn about this and i think that needs to be um something that like if you have a, a young female young male you're doing that together it's not just um if you don't have these parts you don't learn about this and i think that's a another part that's really important with like bringing that experience together um, but you're just giving them little bits of information 
and just keeping that door to conversation open is huge because then you will find that they will be more open and, and bring things up. Um, one thing that I have heard, if someone does feel uncomfortable with any type of subject, it doesn't have to be um, sex education, like you, you and your child have a little journal and you write the question in it and then you slip it under the, the person's pillow and then it's returned in the morning. So you can have those conversations um, without feeling awkward and, and you've got that kind of still way to keep that communication open and, and discuss things. And if it's something that you feel horribly uncomfortable with, you are allowed to be human and you are allowed to say, you know what, this does make me a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm here for you and I want to make sure I can help you the best I can and give you the best information. Absolutely. Um, and that's a beautiful example of a way for more quiet or more uncomfortable parents to communicate with the journal. I, I've seen a lot of success with that on a lot of issues. Um, and to follow up on some of what you were talking about related to adolescence, because um, I have an adolescent um, and you know, she's very well informed about um, the basics, um, but as she's been kind of figuring out when she wants to have her first serious relationship, um, she's very clear about when she will make certain decisions in terms of her own boundaries, but it's been a lot harder on the emotional level um, because, um, you know, your first love, your first time having puppy love, these are conversations we often don't even think about having with our children. Is those surges of emotions that have us tumbling into cascades of urges, even if you don't want to act on them, we have to know how to deal with them. We have to know how to deal with the fact that I have lust for my classmates, but I don't want to have a relationship with them, but I can't stop thinking about them. Okay, that's normal. This is a normal part of being human. And if we can have these conversations with our, our kids when they're coming through puberty and into adolescence, I think they're gonna be a lot better prepared for it. Um, the other thing I was thinking about and I, you know, I really see as an issue is, you know, a lot of kids aren't given the privilege of what you are offering to parents, Katie, or what I hope I have offered my children thus far. Um, and so I see among my daughter's friends, people who really only know what the media says, what they see on TikTok talk or YouTube. Um, and so I really think it's important for those of us who are educating our children this way that we empower them so that they are brave enough to say to their friend who's about to have sex with their boyfriend without telling anyone else, oh, here's a condom. Not that we need to make our kids like the sex education uh, police, but what a beautiful gift to have a child who feels comfortable enough with this topic that they can have the back of their close friends. Um, and because it is a community and at the adolescent age, they care more about their peers often than their parents. So if our children who are learning this way about their bodies can be there to talk to their friends and even offer, yeah, you just go to the pharmacy. Nobody will card you. You can get a box of condoms. Um, that's a valuable skill to have. <laughs> oh, exactly. That's that's so huge because if if they're not learning from us, they will they will seek another source. And hopefully, we've shared enough information and empowered our, our kids to be able to. If they hear someone saying something that's not true, they can feel comfortable to call it out and say, "Ah, oh, that's <laughs> that. What actually is true is," and then. Yeah. That way they're learning from each other, but accurately, yeah. <laughs> because that's, that's the key. <laughs> it really is. And the other thing, you know, that I think is important, and not everyone's going to agree with me on what I'm about to say, but I think we need to stop, um, no matter what our values are, we need to stop pretending that somehow marriage makes sex good. The reality is, is that getting married to someone is not somehow going to teach you everything you need to know to have a good sex life. And regardless of whether or not you want your children to abstain from sex until they get married or not, we have to stop mystifying the marital act and make sure that 
every child has a real understanding of their own body, their own physiology, their own feelings, and their own um, autonomy sexually, because there are a lot of married people who waited until they got married who have terrible sex lives because they don't know anything about their own bodies or their own pleasures. <laughs> yes, oh, 100% agree with you on that. And the funny thing is like, everything that we necessary this is kind of the school aspect everything we learn in school is meant to also apply to outside of school but sex education is not something that's ever seen that way um i mean on the back of a marriage license it doesn't have like a <laughs> a manual to like okay this is how you take care of your body this is how you you're in tune with yourself and that kind of stuff like <laughs> we, we don't kind of get that magic like blessing i suppose to give us all that information downloaded at that time um so it's really important to to have those conversations and all of the side benefits that we've discussed so that way they can be proactive and and your values are included in the decisions that they consider and they have the skills to be able to navigate situations it's huge yeah, yeah and as we're wrapping up our conversation i just want to remind all the adults listening to us Sex is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be pleasurable. And our children need to understand that too. Um, because if all we teach them is shame and doubt about that, then they carry all of that emotional heaviness into their first experiences with their sexual being. And that's not a way to have a happy long-term sex life, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So any last words you want to share with my audience, Katie? Yeah, um, I suppose it can be very uncomfortable discussing some aspects of this, but I encourage you to step into the uncomfortable and find ways, find resources so you can feel more comfortable with these conversations and know that a lot of the stuff that we do for our kids is for the benefit of them, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. And this is exactly the same. We're, we're, we know there's benefit for our kids and if we can kind of take some of that emotional heaviness away that we might have had placed on ourselves we're doing we're doing the right thing for them thank you so much katie and listeners i'm going to make sure you have all the access you need to get a hold of katie and her wonderful um sex education for parent program um and i hope to maybe have you back on and have some other conversations in the future katie thank you so much Thank you so much. I'm excited. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with Michelle, please visit www.drmishtish.com.